Hi, I'm Shreya Bakliwal and this is Women Who Build Podcast. Whenever we think of startup financing, venture capital comes to mind. Coming from investment banking, I realize that there are other ways to fund your company based on your goals and situations. Venture debt is one such instrument and Tarana Lalwani is leading the way in India when it comes to that. It is a special episode for me as I've been fortunate to get to know her closely in the past few months and I only realized this very recently that our journeys are similar. I'm yet to raise a fund on my own though. Tarana is the founding partner at Innovent Capital. She has covered the full spectrum of financial services. She started her career in investment banking at Morgan Stanley and then moved on to work in ABS MBS space to early stage venture capital at Seed Fund. In her most recent role, she helps startups with venture debt at Innoven. Tarana was born and raised in Bombay and pursued her education and early parts of her career in the US, which have clearly shaped how she thinks about the world. She pursued her MBA in corporate finance and entrepreneurship from Columbia University. Now without further delay, I have Tarana for you. Thank you so much Tarana. I have personally loved getting to know your story and it is great to see how you are so passionate about what you do. It is a pleasure to have you here. The pleasure is all mine to be honest. I'm flattered. Oh well. Um let's just start from the beginning. Can you walk us through your journey? from growing up in bombay to now working in bombay typical bombay i born and brought up here and then uh, left home at 16 went away to boarding school for a couple of years in south india to kodi to be exact loved it i consider boarding school the best two years of my life uh, i think it was just a it was an experience i i made the best of friends um you know i went from you know people sometimes joke maybe an all girls school to a co-ed school but i don't know what it was i don't know if it was just living with these people and doing everything with these people but the best two years of my life i think in some ways they also defined me maybe you know i i i just bonded with the boys and sometimes i think you know their influence got me to sort of be where i am in terms of you know wanting to be in the financial services sector or whatever uh then was in the us for 14 years did my undergrad there worked at morgan stanley for a couple of years after undergrad went to columbia for my mba then did abs mbs uh, mortgage backed securities uh before moving back home which is when i sort of transitioned into the venture world and uh came back with a startup actually webaru sms gupshop which is now a unicorn to do biz dev so complete switch from finance went to going to taiwan to meet oem manufacturers very early days in product so quit within a year but did help them raise their series a of 5 million from a hedge fund and then dabbled a bit in with uh, got involved with mumbai angels volunteering time there and you know looking at early stage investments as well as helping a friend with his education venture and at that point in education as you know there was only abroad and educom so sort of landscape the whole market from regulatory non regulatory educational toys to i don't know vocational training higher ed k12 and uh, it was also interesting because that's when i sort of realized that for venture you don't have to be an engineer i always thought you know to be a venture capitalist you have to have a technical degree which i realized you don't need uh from there ended up doing a short stint with anand rathi and then joining seed fund which is how i know pola worked with 
uh, seed fund for almost seven years and then joined Innoven and moved from early stage equity to debt almost four and a half years ago. Hmm. So that's been sort of my journey and full circle coming back home. Um, I wanted to move back home on a personal sort of, you know, from a personal perspective. I love my time in the U.S. I still consider the U.S. second home. You know, I spent my defining growing up years over there or, you know, adult years over there. But, you know, I think personally, I just felt that India, what I value the, our socio, I think I, I, I value the chaos that our society brings. You know, we complain about people interfering in your lives, but I sort of like that. I think it brings warmness and closeness. You're never lonely. And I think that's the aspect that brought me back home. Um, you know, I just want to be closer to people that I care about. And as I said, I like the chaos. I felt the U.S. sort of makes you a little, little tough and, you know, sort of existentialist. And I'm not one of those people. So that's a little bit about me and my sort of journey and coming back full circle home. Now, Tarana, just moving on to your work at InnoVen, what does your day-to-day look like and what does InnoVen do? Uh, InnoVen is a, basically a venture debt player, similar to what, you know, we give debt instead of equity yeah. to startups. Uh, and, I, you know, I should actually take a step back. The reason I'm also in this ecosystem is because I enjoy meeting founders. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I've realized I don't have any great ideas, so why not be, you know, in an ecosystem where I can sort of learn and interact with these interesting people. Uh, so we give loans to startups. And, um, you know, what the reason it's called venture debt is twofold. One, because we come into companies what, you know, let's for lack of better words, say new economy startup businesses, which are funded by venture equity guys. So hence the name venture debt. Uh, but it's a loan. And uh, the way it works is it's not a bridge loan. A lot of people assume it's a bridge loan between rounds. It's actually a top up to one's equity round. These companies don't usually qualify for traditional debt Hmm. because banks want profitability or they want hard collateral, which most of these companies don't have. So that's where we play a role. We come in. In some cases, it's a no-brainer, right? If you have a CapEx or a working capital requirement, why use equity money for it? Debt makes sense. Sometimes it's more like use like an insurance policy. You know, you want to raise 5 million, but you think, oh, you know, in a year, God knows where the ecosystem may be. It may be tougher to raise. I just want to raise a little extra money and keep it. So you raise, you know, maybe some of it in debt. So instead of five, you raise six with a million in debt or vice versa. You don't like the valuation. So like, I don't want to dilute for five. I'll dilute for four and raise another million in debt. Okay. And, you know, the way, so that's sort of the role Venture Debt plays. And that's what Venture Debt, Innoven does. We, we give loans to startups. Um, taking a step back, if you'd like, I can give you a little bit of background on Innoven as well. Innoven, uh, we were actually the first and uh, Venture Debt player in the country. Started back in 2008. We were actually Silicon Valley Bank, India. Hmm. And then in 15, SVB exited out and Temasek and UOB acquired the business and rebranded it as Innoven. Okay. Uh, we were uh, being backed by Temasek and UOB and until recently. And then in, uh, till, we were in an NBFC structure. And then in uh, two months ago, we just did our first close with Temasek and UOB and moved to an AIF fund structure hmm. and are now looking to uh, raise third-party money and close a, a larger fund of approximately $200, $250 million. Hmm. So that's a little bit about InnoVen and Venture Debt. Um, what I do at InnoVen is basically I'm a, one of the founding partners. We basically um, 
we meet founders, we meet investors, and we I get involved in sourcing, origination of transactions. But also, as I said, because I enjoy working with founders, you know, I, I we try and as much help and work with our founders in our portfolio companies that just within the ecosystem, you know, maybe it's biz dev, maybe it's connecting them to other investors as they look to raise their next round of funding, sometimes with hiring, you know, so various little things like what an equity investor does. Wherever we can help, we like to get involved and do something. So my role is a little bit of jack of all trades. Interesting. And uh, you just mentioned that uh, Innoven transitioned from being an NBFC to an AIF. So uh, what does that mean and what does the process entail? So, yeah, so transition in the sense I should uh, correct. We were until now an NBFC, which still exists, which will pay down and sort of, you know, we'll pay, we'll pay the book off and close it. Okay. We've moved to a fund structure. So now it's a completely separate entity called Innoven Capital Fund which where Tamasic and UOB have come in with 100 mil, and then we'll go out and raise third-party money from family offices, HNIs, institutions, and then start deploying, or rather we are now deploying from that. So transition in the sense, I mean, it's a word transition, but it's it's two separate entities. The NBFC will just, you know, sort of we'll pay off the book and close it. Got it. And is there any difference in how you operate now that you have transitioned to a full-blown fund? You know, not really. We're still the same. I mean, operations and fund and everything. You know, the thing that changes is now we'll have other investors. Earlier, we had just two stakeholders, Temasek and Yobi. Now, obviously, we'll have multiple stakeholders. And we just have to better manage our capital calls. You know, in an NBFC, you know, you you had two stakeholders. You had their money and you levered up a bit with the partner banks. Yeah. Now, we just have to manage, you know, when we do our capital calls from our LPs because we have a responsibility to them. And um, I mean, I can walk you through what, how the fund, you know, the venture debt fund structure works, uh, if you like, um, if you think that's relevant, um, happy to walk you through it. Yeah, like a brief um, introduction would be so, great. Sure. So, in, you know, unlike an equity fund where, you know, you come in for a seven, eight, eight years plus two and equity funds, you know, on the equity side, when you're coming in as equity investors, your decision-making or your thought process is more binary, zero or hundred. You're not looking for a company and saying, okay, I don't want to lose money in this company. Mm. You know, you're looking at, will this company give me a hundred X? On the debt side, the mindset is more, okay, you know what, one is capital preservation, right? We're debt. We want our money back. And then we obviously have an equity kicker as well. So the way we look at it is because it's debt, you know, will I get my money back first? And then, you know, we also take equity kickers and I'll walk you through what the structure of a venture debt model is. But from a fund perspective, it's a seven year life where for the first four years we're investing. But we have, unlike equity, we have our money coming back. It's getting recycled. So we deploy it again. So we have a four year investment period where our LPs or stakeholders or whatever you want to call them will get quarterly interest payments. And by end of year three, they start getting principal repayments. And then by year seven, they pretty much get all their money back. Plus, you know, hopefully some equity warrant kickers. Mm-hmm. So it's a slightly different structure in that sense uh, to an equity fund, which, you know, where you may not, you'll probably see all your exits after year seven. Mm-hmm. And in terms of how venture debt itself works, when we come into companies, as I said, it's not a bridge loan. I come into companies where they have a 12 month or a one year, you know, at least 12 to 15 months of money in the bank because it's a top up to the equity round. And most companies, when they raise funds and we come as close to the equity round, they generally are raising money for anywhere from 15 to 18 months at least. Yeah. 
it's a two to three year loan with monthly amortizing payments yeah. and a coupon. And in addition to the coupon, we take an equity kicker, which is where the dilution part that I spoke about earlier comes in, where if for the same million dollars, you will dilute only for a hundred K. We take, you know, equity kickers, which are between 10 to 15% of the loan amount. So instead of diluting for a million dollars, you'll dilute for a hundred thousand dollars. So you dilute for one tenth of what you dilute for the same amount of capital if you are raising equity. Hmm. Yeah. And then as, as, as the debt player, my hope is that I am backing companies that tomorrow these equity kickers will be in the money. And, you know, I have a seven year life to exercise them. And then these can give me some sort of a upside, you know, in your five, six, seven, which is where I said, you know, then you get sort of get incremental additional payouts as an LP. So Tarana, since you are raising right now, it would be great to know how does one go about the process in terms of the timing, in terms of positioning, etc. And, uh, you know, where I'm coming from is that there is a lot of literature um, for startups, right, to refer to. So how do you raise capital? What do you do? Or how do you write a pitch book? Um, I want to know what do you do um, when you raise for a fund? So, you know, I think it's very similar to the uh, to raising for a startup, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, the difference is that in a startup, or in a particular company, you are, you're more micro-focused. This is more macro. Mm -hmm. So here you look at the India dynamics. You look at what are the alternative assets that people can invest in. You will, um, you know, as a, when I pitch, I talk about the portfolio approach, right? How my portfolio has done, how our track record has done, Mm -hmm. similar to an equity, right? Or any equity investor. What has our performance been? How has the team performed? I think that for me, one thing that I always like to keep in mind is, I'd much rather preempt and be candid about something than, you know, not. So what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's important, which is similar even in a, in a product company, right? You would bring out. So I think there's not a, there's no real difference between pitching for a fund versus a company other than micro versus macro. Mm. Um, And just keeping in mind that when you talk to a lot of investors, this may be a new asset class for them. So educating them about the asset class, you know, which is important. Like, you know, how does this asset class work? You know, understanding that this is an alternative to your fixed income portfolio, not your equity portfolio. What are the returns like? How do they work? So just to explain, you know, we generally have a coupon, which is around 14%, you know, and then we have these equity kickers. So on a portfolio approach, on the equity kickers, someone can expect an upside of 7 to 10%. Right. on the fund so as a as a as a venture debt product we can we are we can promise or we can state that you could get a return of 16 to 18 percent after carry and fees which is a great asset you know is a great return if, if you compare fixed income where in your you know in your fixed income uh, deposits you get like a four five percent return yeah. or with a corporate bonds you're getting like a eight percent return yeah and uh, what's interesting is because the way the structure of this lo- works, and I told you it's a you know monthly amortizing loan, we generally have tail risk. So the risk, you know, your, the risk is very manageable. So Innoven, you know, when I when I pitch, the one of the things I give credit to is that Innoven we have really done a good job managing our risk and return. Our risks have been under one percent, and our returns have been almost close to low twenties. But let's say high teens. Yeah. Yeah. So we've done a great, I mean, by far, we probably do have the best record uh, 
but you know it's early days and you, you don't want to post about something when you know time will tell so you talked about risks what are some of the risks that uh, a venture debt fund can take into account so as i said you know our it's debt yeah. so we all I, you know when i talk to founders and i i, I keep repeating this it is debt it is serviceable you owe me the money back yeah. unlike equity where you can take a chance of it and it can you know you don't owe yeah. anyone the money back technically so we, as i said we come into companies when they have 12 to 15 months runway my loan is generally a two and a half to three year outstanding loan so the first part of the loan is paid back right because it's monthly amortizing or part of the loan is paid back it's the second you know i have tail risk and how we manage this tail risk is key and it's not only a fiduciary responsibility to my lps it's also fiduciary responsibility to the founders right mm. it is debt after all yeah. so i feel it would be a disservice if i came into a company when they have 6 months runway and i say here now let me give you some debt and fine let's take a chance because then all i'm doing is i'm adding a burden on the company yeah. which they did not need and adding this pressure and potentially debt can also accelerate debt like in traditional banking right i mean in traditional old economy businesses also if you're over levered up it can accelerate your debt so the same thing applies here so i think it's balancing that piece that okay can this company is this a company that should be taking on debt so mm-hmm. that's where you sort of have to balance it and manage it and that's how we so we we wear a sort of hybrid debt and equity hat yeah i wear a debt hat yeah. because these are cash burning businesses so i'm sorry i wear an equity hat because these are cash burning businesses and if if i looked at it purely from debt i would never give fund any of these companies hmm. so there you wear the equity hat that okay similar to you know the equity investors quality of founder opportunity are they you know do they have the ability to do i think they'll be able to raise the next round of equity and continue being operational and you wear a debt hat to look at the cash flows and understand can this business service can the the debt that they're taking on yeah so that's how you sort of manage the risk piece absolutely makes sense and uh, for for founders right do you see a level of understanding amongst founders when it comes to cash flows and do you think that there are a few sectors that need to be very tight in terms of their cash flow control you know if there are some businesses like a saas business should have cash flows right mm-hmm. and like you said d to c but i don't you know honestly i don't think there's a there's you can say that we focus on one or the other that's the honest truth right hmm. when we're coming into businesses we funded certain companies that were had zero revenue hmm. but you know they they wanted to raise funds to accelerate growth and it made sense for them hmm. so i think it's a balancing act but ideally which is why venture debt does you're not going to come in venture debt's not going to come into companies you know seed stage hmm. ideally you know, venture debt plays a role between that series a to sort of cd yeah. you know because where you you hope by the series late series a sort of round their their mortality is sort of defined that they're not going to go and then cd by C, later than series d you hope that they at a point where they can raise traditional debt yeah but having said that given where the ecosystem's been we have made exceptions and done some pre series a companies we've also done some late stage companies because they cannot raise traditional debt right so there's no there's no real answer to that you know if you ask me i think venture debt is um i always joke that we're check agnostic we're stage agnostic and we're sector agnostic <laughs> so now tarana coming to the timing right how do you decide when is the right time to raise funds unfortunately for funds it comes down to you know as lps it's a fiduciary responsibility 
So with an equity fund or a debt fund, uh, with equity fund, there's a deployment period, right? So while you're in active deployment and you have 75% of your money not deployed, you can't go and raise your next fund. And that's sort of broadly the thumb of rule for most funds from what I know, you know, 60, 70% that, or year three, because they have a four year or five year investment cycle, and then they start uh, harvesting. Yeah. With uh, with debt funds, it's also something similar where we say, you know, to year three and we've deployed most of our money and then we go into sort of recycling mode, we will not go out and raise. Because I mean, look at it, right? I mean, I, if I'm on fund one, I can't get distracted by fund two mm. in year two and say, okay, now I'm just going to go raise the next fund. You know, so it, it comes down to, you know, sort of, have you finished what you promised? Have you deployed? Have you got, you know, have you done your work for this fund and then move on to the next one? Yeah. Makes sense. Tarana, your background is interesting. Um, you know, you've been on the equity side at uh, Seed Fund and now you are on the venture debt side. So what are the main differences in terms of how you operate um, as an investor? I think the main difference is, um, you know, well, one difference, and I think this has to do more with the era and the time. Uh, when I was at Seed Fund, one Seed Fund was like, we were one of the early stage pioneers in the Indian ecosystem. Uh, and you had folks like Praveen Gandhi, PG, who were just like, I mean, literally perceived as godfather. <laughs> so we were truly by side. Yeah, yeah. Where people flocked to you and said, please give me money. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I mean, I, 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 now I think it's, it's a flip. And not just for debt, but even on equity where... I think we've become more sell side and it's a founder's market. But even, you know, to be to, uh, jokes aside, you know, when I first came into venture debt, it was a little bit of a push product because like I said, founders were not aware of it. So mm. you had to educate them about how this works. Yeah. Now there is a lot more awareness. So I think now it's a little more balanced in terms of the offering that debt has and people see the value of it. But just given where the market dynamics have been in the last 18 months, it's a little bit of a push where, and not just a push or a sell, because even as 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 now running a fund, you you know my responsibility is that I do want to get the right deals, hmm. you yeah. know. So yeah. I think that awareness has come that it, it, to me that if I want to go after the right deals, then I have to be more proactive about it. Hmm. Yeah. And so I think it's it's uh, it's not equity or debt it's more about where you are today and recognizing that you have a responsibility your lps you have a responsibility yeah. not even a responsibility you, you i mean if you enjoy what you do and you're you want you want to do be the best at it you want to do it right so i think it i'm i feel like i'm more um and you know paul and pg will joke about this i think i was a lot more passive when i was at seed fund now i'm a lot more assertive i'm a lot more proactive about going out and 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 it's it's been a good learning. I mean, it's made me more of an extrovert, which I wasn't. Hmm. You know, I've become more bold as a as an individual being in this. Yeah. So yeah. so it's been a personal slash professional <laughs> development. Well, I could have never imagined that you were an introvert. How has the transition been from uh, being an introvert to now being out there? You know, I don't know if I'm an extrovert or see the two definition of an introvert is somebody who's not comfortable, right? Mm. I mean, if you go by the two definition or whatever, some people say introverts are comfortable, you know, just want to be by themselves. Some say that it's about comfort, what do they prefer? So I don't know what, I mean, the formal definition. I think for me, it, it stemmed from, well, I mean, if I had to go back and look at it, I think my first experience of 
you know, sort of being thrown. So, so just taking a complete step back, uh, and I don't know if this, this helps. Yeah. So while I was in business school at Columbia, I, you know, I was very clear my whole life. Like, I mean, as I said, you know, having all these guy friends and having grown up in the era of Wall Street and all, I was very clear I wanted to go become CEO of Goldman Sachs. That was my oh, ambition, wow. billionaire Goldman Sachs. That was... I'd seen this movie Billionaire. That's what I would be. Yeah. Then so I remember yeah. when I was at Columbia, all my friends were like, Tana, you're a, you know, I mean, I, I didn't even take it the wrong way. They're like, you're an attractive girl. You should just go into sales and trading. It's a better lifestyle. Save money. Why do you want to do investment banking, corporate finance, kill yourself? And I was like, are you kidding me? I can't, I mean, I'm not a people person. I'm pretty, I mean, I'm very comfortable with my friends. I'm shy. I'm, you know, I, I, I don't go out and talk to random strangers. No chance in hell. I'm not a sales person. No. Yeah. And, um, 9-11 happened. I was in the US. I don't have an H-1B. I had to get, I had to take whatever I could get. I got a job with Radiant, which was, and I had the best boss. I mean, I had this Greek boss who was fantastic. Probably he's, I mean, I could, I got, learned a lot from him in terms of how to manage people. I, I always say he taught me how to even be a good manager, delegate, all that. And my first week at, 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 you know, at Radiant, he's like, okay, there's an SAPNI conference, go meet people. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Go meet people. Like, what? <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> and then he'd give me a hard time because I'm not a big drinker. He's like, I gotta go meet people. You gotta drink wine. What are you gonna do? How are you gonna order wine if you don't drink wine? You don't like the taste. You got, you know. So, I mean, I was just, but I was put in a role. I was in a role where I had to learn to manage internally a credit risk committee, the legal guys, our own IC, my structurers who would actually work do the number crunching. Uh, and then on the external, like, you know, then work with issuers and underwriters and legal counsel of these folks and negotiate and manage literally people. Like it was a people job more than anything else, like literally project financing. And so I was just thrown into this and I had to just learn how to manage people, negotiate all that. And it was more like on the job training. And I think that's when I started recognizing that I'm more of a people person and not, mm-hmm. I'm not as detail oriented and good or bad as I thought I was. And and that managing folks and learning how to basically, you know, human psychology is important or call it in, in the EQ is just as important as IQ. Yeah. And that's where I sort of, you know, then I learned, okay, I have to go out and meet these people. And I recognize, you know, I mean, you, you just have to be. And so from, I, I think it stemmed from there. And, uh, and I think partly just having a lot of guy friends also, because I think you know, they just make you bolder, right? Yeah. And I think it was a combo. And I, I say that in a good way because they would just be so tough. They would just, I mean, and maybe again, you know, maybe my guy friends just were like, they treated me like one of the, I was a tomboy and they just treated me. And so they just be tough on you. And so you just learn yeah. to become more thick skin. But I think it was a combination of those two that may, sort of made me more, I'd say open to just going up and talking to people. Mm if that's the way I had to put it yeah. or at least be able to put on the appearance that I'm, I can do it. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So it stemmed from there. And then lastly, good or bad. And I, I don't know if this is something when I joined, you know, when I think I was put in a pretty, it was a pretty tough culture initially, a little bit like investment banking, hunt what you eat. And so I, I, I think it was the circumstances that made me learn how to just go out there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I completely resonate with what you just said. 
um, you know, coming from an investment banking background, I now realize the importance of, um, you know, my training and how um, it made me very comfortable uh, with stakeholder management and talking to people and being an extrovert, um, if you will. Now, Tarana, you know, we've we've spoken about your traits. Um, and uh, I believe it's a great segue to my next question, which is that when you look at founders, what are some qualities or what are some traits that uh, you look for? For me, and you know, everyone will make fun of me, but I, for me, integrity and values are very important. So I'm very, that's my first thing that I gauge in a founder. Um and then two, um, you know, can I trust this person, right? I mean, ultimately, I'm giving him or her money, but more so. And then also, I mean, and people make fun, are they likable, right? Because mm. if they're not, I mean, they are initially the client, they're the face for clients, employees, investors, everyone. They are, I mean, you can't, initially, they are the company, right? So I think for me, those two, and obviously, then also their aptitude and capability, right? I mean, I might love the person. I may think they're super, he or she's super smart and super nice. But if I don't think they're smart enough, obviously I can't back them. So are they capable and is the opportunity great? So I think it's, it's so from a founder personality perspective, it would be, you know, I think let's call it their ability or capability brains. Um, you know, are they someone with high integrity and values? And three, do they have a personality, right? Are they likable? And of course, then that is overcasted by the opportunity itself. Um, so I think that's what I, I I personally, and I know a lot of people dismiss the values and likable part, but I think it's, it's important. And, you know, I see that with most founders or the founders that I consider friends today or yeah. get along with or have that those qualities. So I think it affirms for me that it works for me. Tarana, another thing that I wanted to discuss with you on the podcast, um, I remember from our last conversation, you mentioned that one of the traits of a good leader is uh, good negotiation skills. So what does good negotiation mean to you? Think long term, okay? Think long term and make it a win-win on both sides. I think that's key to any negotiation. And over there, having the aptitude and the intelligence to understand what is important for the for the, the person on the opposite side sitting across from you is important because then you are able to give them something that they want and get what you want. And balancing that is key, I think, because if, if I walk away from a transaction not feeling good, I may not want to work with that person again. Vice versa, if they walk away, they may not want to work again. We always have to think long term. So I think it stems thinking long term relationships. And then how do you sort of balance it out for both sides where both sides feel they benefited from it or win-win, like I said. You know, I think that's where it stems from. And, you know, again, I'm going to be politically incorrect. But I think, you know, people always say that both, you know, I personally think that there are, you know, negotiation as an art in the sense of recognizing if one person is in a position of power or the other is not, right? Is And managing that or, or one position. I mean, simple things like, you know, a woman negotiating with a man, how do you negotiate? Or a boss negotiating with an employee or vice versa, or an older older individual negotiating with a younger individual. And I think those balancing, actually those things are are not necessarily a, a weakness, they're actually a strength. Mm, yeah. So, you know, people always think, oh, you know, it's. I think those actually are nuances that you have to recognize and then how you negotiate. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And, uh, you know, very recently, I was just uh, listening to a conversation between Brené Brown and Oprah. And they discussed how in any discussion or in any negotiation, using your human side will always help. So what do you have to say about that? Do you agree? Completely agree with you. I, I completely second that, which is why I'm saying, you know, yeah. it's not necessarily a disadvantage or look should be perceived negatively if it's if it's a older individual uh, negotiating with a younger or a or a man versus a woman or or uh, or a uh, you know uh, you know those sort of differences like we think oh you know i can't talk to someone older or i can't talk to, you know i think those things actually help i mean not help is the wrong word again i think there are there are sort of this this game theory and tactics that you know where you can negotiate sometimes i think because someone's younger to me or older to me it gives me a different leverage of how i negotiate with them right i use the i use the young card to say come on you know help me out i'm young do something for me or vice versa i'm older show me some respect blah blah yeah so i think it actually can and be but recognizing that you know and i think that's where the human aspect that you said oprah was talking about comes in yeah you know, and I think negotiation has to be genuine. Hmm. Hmm. So I think that's key. You can't, you know, like uh, you can't go in not being yourself. Yeah. And once you close on a certain point, move on to the next and don't go back. Don't hmm. do that. It, it loses the negotiation. Loses you lose respect for the for your for the person on the opposite side. Yeah. So be fair. Tarana, you've been involved with a bunch of fintech companies as part of your portfolio. So where do you think we currently are in the space and what lies ahead in the future? Well, I mean, we've done a bunch of fintech companies, so I've seen it through that lens. But even as a consumer, like, you know, I, I'm always complaining, right? I feel like in India, it's partly I know it's regulation, but I just feel like things don't work, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a little spoiled again having lived outside the country where everything functioned. I mean, I went to my Citibank branch once in my life to open my account and I've never went back to that branch. I never had to go back for anything. You know, in the US, you can deposit checks on your phone by scanning them on your phone. And, uh, you know, your your Citibank bank account talks to your trading account, which talks to your mutual fund account. And it's very, you know, it's very seamless. Um, And, you know, all that has spoiled me. And so I think that's, something that I keep looking for in India or in short tech or, or, you know, whatever, like being able to just do things. It's more, that's just, it's just easier. Yeah. And so I think yeah. from that perspective, I've always been complaining. And now because I see a whole bunch of companies out there, I think, you know, UPI has helped. I think the new rule that's coming on universal UPI will also be a game changer. Uh, what we're seeing, uh, you know, and I, I also think it's, it's all in tandem, right? Smartphones, data becoming cheaper, all that are a catalyst to to helping what we can do in the fintech space. I know right now, most businesses we're seeing are all focused on lending, but it would be good to, and you know, we are now seeing a few in insurance, I think, but I'm excited about the neobanks. I'm excited about seeing what, um, you know, very early days in India, and we don't know what regulation will do, but what blockchain can do for, you know, or, you know, DeFi can do for the ecosystem because I'd love to see if we can break some of the friction, right? I mean, you want to send money abroad, it's a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, if, if if DeFi, you know, decentralization can help that or enhance, I mean, those are things that I'm excited about. I, I want to see people doing something more disruptive because I think we have a lot of pain points out here mm-hmm. and 
there's a huge opportunity to sort of disrupt and you know sort of make things more frictionless to yeah. be honest yeah yeah and i think one thing or one trend that i've noticed is that people have started to invest right um right after covid um it it may be due to the adversity that they may have seen or just because uh, there are so many instruments financial instruments to invest in so what do you think is the state of personal finance and what works what doesn't work what is it that the, that you would like to see I think I think we're all learning right I mean there are folks who understand it I think like I think we spoke about it you know there are pluses and minuses I think zero da has brought in a lot of awareness like you and I were talking about and sort of getting all socio economic backgrounds to start trading at least that's my perception I could be wrong but you know as I was telling you I was complaining being a little spoiled kid but having to go and activate every time or, or get an OTP to sell shares and yeah. on the CS yeah <laughs> which is another thing I'm complaining about um i think uh you know i you know we were talking about how there are these women centric products or non or general general products i think everyone just needs education right to just understand basic how you know what can you do like what are the products what are the tax impact and i think there's no i haven't yet found one venture or one someone solving for this Right. you know sort of making it all like content and execution again simply available yeah yeah so at least i think there's a lot of noise and i i i get overwhelmed so tarana now coming to some personal stuff i am a huge believer of the fact that whatever you do in your personal life clearly reflects on your professional life and vice versa and i also know that you are very consistent when it comes to sports so be it swimming or golfing or anything else so how do you maintain that consistency in both your personal and professional lives oh i think i meant i'll go to the easy part i maintain consistency because i think i'm just a nerd i'm ocd and i'm a nerd and i feel like okay if i'm doing something i should give it 100% yeah. honestly it stems from that um i I'm just, I don't know if I'm a, I I wouldn't say I'm a perfectionist but I just like giving my best to anything and I you know it's like call it like competitiveness or or ambition or whatever it stems from um and the golf and swimming I mean I've been swimming since I was a kid I love I've always been a water baby yeah and uh and it's really stupid but you know I was always paranoid about putting on weight and mm-hmm. I remember reading as a teenager that madonna swims for 2 hours a day so i got that obsession oh i need to swim 2 hours a day to have that body <laughs> so it started from there but now lockdown and blah blah so i so i think it stems from some sort of uh um so it's a, it's a mix of being ocd um, slash driven to sort of compete against yourself and always self improve to to uh to just aesthetically looking good. Mm, yeah. I know it's not politically the correct answer to say but but I looks matter to me and I like looking decent. So <laughs> but it's true. I mean so that's where it comes yeah, from. Yeah. And and honestly I genuinely enjoy both. I think I find them therapeutic. I it's my meditation, it's my me time. Um I enjoy um I genuinely feel like it gives me sometimes you know clears my mind clears my head hmm. so i think it's it's a mix of all that and you know I, i'm also one of those 
as I said, I'm a nerd and I always feel like I have to be productive and be doing something with my life. So it's, it, you know, yeah. So lots of little check boxes I have and these two just happen to be on that list. Thank you, Tarana. Love chatting. Mm-hmm.